How wonderful to be able to hear God's word. Lord, help us to live it. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 2. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Oh, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thanks, Val. Well, friends, uh, if you haven't got the passage open, I'd really encourage you to have it open there so that we can uh, see how this comes together and, and what God is saying to us through it. But as we kick off, I don't know about you, as I was reflecting this week on, on the things that we're looking at here today, I think for many of us, being a Christian makes us feel like we are very different to the people that we, we live next door to or, or work with. And oftentimes, that difference can 
come at a cost. It seems uh, these days that the, the Christians are more often labelled the bad guys rather than the good guys in other people's eyes. For some of us though, we might feel, if we're reflecting on it, that actually in so many ways we're so similar to our non-Christian friends or family that we're left wondering what difference it, our faith really makes in our life. Well, if any of that resonates with you, uh, I want you to encourage you to grab a copy of this great book and he holds up the book that he left at home on the, the, the desk um, uh, at home. Um, but if you want to jump online to the Sunday Hub, the sermon outline, it's got the details of it. Being the bad guys uh, by a Perth pastor, Stephen McAlpine, it, which really helpfully gets us reflecting on the culture that we live in. As released last year, Australian author, he kind of gets the way Australia ticks. And why... Being different as a Christian is viewed as many, by many people as being a bad thing. But that it's exactly what the Bible tells us we should expect, even when it comes at a cost. And today's passage from Ephesians can be summed up with the very simple statement, as God's people, we should expect to be different. As we dig into the passage, it, it's really helpful to know that the Ephesian Christians, the people that this letter was first written to, yes, 2,000 years ago, but in a land not so different to our own, the Ephesian Christians knew that standing out as a Christian could be very costly. In Acts chapter 19, we can read about Paul's time with them in the city of Ephesus, and we read about how it all blew up for them. Uh, You might remember, or it might be the first time you've ever heard of this place called Ephesus. Well, it was a thriving commercial hub, a real cultural melting pot. It was one one of those spots of significant trade routes crossing over. And alongside all of that cultural uh, sort of context, Ephesus was famous for a very big building right in its centre, the the glorious temple to the goddess Artemis. It was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So when Paul and all the newly converted Christians kept talking about the hope that they had in Jesus and their exclusive allegiance to him, not just any other pagan god or goddess around, that upset a lot of people. We've got on the screen for us here, Joel, um, a, a little excerpt from Acts chapter 19, just to paint the picture for you, so that we bear this in mind as we read over again what we've looked at from Ephesians. So at about that time, after Paul had been sharing with them, people had been becoming Christians, there was a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be desecrated, sorry, discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, if we kept reading through Acts chapter 19, we'll read that there was a whole riot that followed. This this angry, violent mob grabbed two of Paul's travelling companions because they were kind of convinced, they were corrupt by association. They were so volatile, so unpredictable that the other Christians kind of didn't even let Paul be seen in public because they were really fearful for his safety. This was life in Ephesus. The Ephesians knew that to stand out for being different as a Christian could be very costly. 
And yet, to live a life worthy of our calling is to live a life that is different. In Christ, we should expect to be different to our neighbours and, as we will see, different to our old selves. And as Lauren so helpfully summed up for us with the kids, that difference is ultimately because we actually want to look more like our Heavenly Father. So that's our three points we're going to work our way through. First, expect to be different to your neighbours. And as Paul put it there very simply in verse 17, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, if that's an unfamiliar word for you, Gentiles is really Paul just simply referring to the nations, which is kind of to say everyone who is not a member of Israel, which was effectively the entire population of the city of Ephesus. Which is helpful for us to bear in mind because he's not, he's not ragging on some sort of category of ultra bad guy. He's just talking about their neighbours and their colleagues. He's simply saying, don't live like the world around you that doesn't listen to God's word. And with that in mind, we might expect him to jump on to a whole list of ungodly things the Gentiles do. You know, whatever you do, don't, don't do this, that and the other. But did you notice that Paul doesn't do that? He he actually helps us to unpack what is going on in the mind of the average Gentile in Ephesus and, I think, in Adelaide, for that matter. Did you see how he did that? Looking again from verse 17. Don't live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Now, Paul doesn't jump into a list of don't do this because the things that we do and don't do, they are all simply a reflection of the way that we see the the world and God's place in it. And as Paul puts it in a fairly blunt way, the unbelieving way of life is based on a futile way of thinking. Now, at this point, it can sound like Paul's being pretty rude, but it's, it's, it's really clear that he's not saying that unbelievers are somehow unintelligent people. We read through his letters and accounts of his speeches in Acts, and he clearly respects many non-Christian people as highly intelligent people. But what he's saying here is that ultimately, the way of thinking about this world without God ultimately ends in futility in a kind of frustration, in a fruitlessness that, in the long run. And if you like a picture to bring to mind, uh, we've been talking a lot about plants with deep roots down, picture this as a futile and unfruitful plant. And Paul helps us dig beneath the surface to see what the root cause is, pun noted. So, in verse 18, he he takes us beneath the surface, this pattern of of futile thinking, it's a reflection of a darkened understanding which he equates as being cut off from the life of God and and digging even further, well, the non-Christian is in the dark because of the ignorance in them. Again, he's not being rude, he's not saying these guys are idiots, but in a sense, that idea of ignorance is exactly what it sounds like. It happens when you ignore something or more to the point in the Bible's worldview, when you ignore someone. God, because this ignorance is a result of an even deeper cause. At the root of it, all of them is a persistently closed mind towards God. That's what it means to harden your heart. That's the phrase, the image that he uses there. It's to stubbornly reject someone, 
to persistently block your ears to them. So Paul's analysis of the Gentile world is that their lifestyle is simply a reflection of this whole, kind of, as he describes it, a futile way of looking at things that doesn't allow for God in the picture, that stubbornly rejects him. And how does it impact their lifestyle? Well, Paul moves back from that root cause to describe what is going on above the surface and he gives another picture of that stubborn rejection of God. It's as if they've blunted their sense of feeling. It's like a scar that's just been repeatedly seared and and has lost its sensation. So the unbelieving heart, which chases after any sensation that their calloused nerve endings can find. And our NIV translation that we've read, puts it fairly starkly. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. But to put it quite simply, the practical consequence of a heart that takes God out of the picture is to pursue any sense of satisfaction in all kinds of directions that we might. Now, at this point, Paul hasn't given any specific detail of what that looks like in action. It's all about the way that we view the world our attitude towards it. And I think that's really helpful for us to note because it it helps us to see that Paul's primary concern with the Gentile way of life is, is not the external stuff of their sexual ethics or their drunkenness or their materialism or the physical violence, these kinds of things that we know are going on in the city of Ephesus. He's not a wowser raging against the loose morals of those nasty Gentile people. He's helping the Ephesian Christians see that the reason they should expect to be different, different to their neighbours, is because that at their core, they see this world very differently because they see God. I think that's very helpful for us to reflect on in Adelaide today. Because it it means that if you are in Christ, if if you trust Jesus, you should expect that you will look different to the non-Christian people you know. You shouldn't be surprised if your holidays look different or your house looks different, the car that you drive might look different, the the relationships and the families and the way you spend your free time might look different. It should not surprise us. But it also reminds us that for all of the various subtle differences and sometimes they are big and sometimes they're small, the core issue is how we view the world, with or without God. That is what ultimately matters. And if that's the root cause of such difference, then I don't think we should merely expect to look different. We should long to look different. And when we're not so different on the surface, perhaps we look around and we think, gee, yeah, I'm not sure whether it really has made much difference for me. I wonder whether that should prompt us to head where Paul heads in this next paragraph, to reflect on whether we're just referring to the old way of life apart from Jesus. If you read with me from verse 20, it says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him according, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you're following the outline, this is our second point. We should expect to look different to our own old selves. 
If you're in Christ, something has happened. And it, it radically impacts the way that we view the world. God engages our mind with truth. And it's not just a truth about Jesus, it is Jesus himself. Because our former ignorance wasn't just that we didn't know stuff, we didn't know information about Jesus, it was relational. We didn't want to know Jesus. And knowing Jesus radically informs our perspective on life and it needs to totally reorient our priorities. Which means that in a very practical way, if you come to faith in Jesus, you should expect that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause, it's going to require a shake-up of the way you see the world and the way that you live life. We should expect to look different to our old selves. And that's something that continues to happen. It's not a one-time event. Yes, we are brought into the family, but we have to keep getting dressed every morning, thinking through what we're going to put on for the day to come. And while there's a sense in which that will at times, mean that we look very similar to our neighbours. At other times, we should be willing to see that not only do we look different to our neighbours, but we are actually able to recognise that we're making different choices from the way that we used to live. Paul takes us through a few different categories. We're not going to try and dig into that all, um, you know, word by word or verse by verse, but I think there's three things that, that come through in what he unpacks here. First, our speech should change. Did you notice that? In verse 25, we read the really simple instruction that I'm trying to impart to my children, we speak the truth. (laughs) Truth matters to God. But more than that, if we read over it, we'd realise that actually verse 29, we need to avoid the sort of the rotten words that make people sick and instead we want to speak in a way that builds others up. If you want to read ahead into chapter 5, you'll see that, that theme of our words carry on that we actually want to set aside foolish talk that reflects a life of of lust and greed and wanting more for ourselves. There's a sense in which Christians shouldn't just look different, we should sound different. We should develop a certain kind of gospel accent. It's an accent that puts an emphasis on the truth, on building others up, on seeking the good for others, not just our own self-interest. So our conversations should be different. As the Apostle Peter put it, seasoned with grace which I think, you know, in this day and age, it's not just the words we speak, but the things that we write, our social media profiles, our our workplace chatter should be different, not tearing down others so that we can climb over the top of them, but diminishing ourselves and honouring others. Our words should be different because we see the world through the lens of Jesus. Okay, the second big category uh, that is different in life, and this comes up really clearly in verse 26, is our temper. In your anger, do not sin. Which, to be really clear, is not a command to just say, don't be angry. Our anger is a, it's a, it's a raw emotional response that we can't necessarily prevent, but we can control the way that we will respond to our anger, whether we fuel it or constrain it whether we dwell on it and simmer on it and harbour it, letting it linger through the day and on into the night, or, or whether we will prayerfully hand it over to God. Remembering, because we see this world through the lens of Jesus, we know that well, God is the one, He sees and He knows, He is the one who, who will bring justice, He will set things to right. So I don't need to stand on my rights in my anger, but to hand it over to God. 
And our temper, it's no trivial thing. Did you see how Paul described it? It can be a toehold that the devil uses to claim back territory that, that should be devoted to Jesus. And I don't think any of us who have struggled in an argument with our spouse or blown up at our kids or had a major workplace conflict, we don't need to think too hard to see how that plays out. When the temptation rises to hang on to our anger rather than hand it over to God, to see it overcome with patience and gentleness and humility. If you want to read through to the end of chapter 5, you'll see that thread come up again and again and again. And then the third category that Paul addresses, well, it's striking really, verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. I don't know what you guys were getting up to last week, but if this is something that you need to pay attention to, then let it be so. But, jokes aside, what a great reminder that the church is a place of grace for sinners of every sort. You don't bother writing something like this if, if you think that the church is just some finishing school for saints. It's where perfect people come to preen and show how good they are. Not at all. God's grace is for everyone. Jesus says, come as you are, thieves and all. But he will never leave us just as we are. And the theme, the thread that runs through from this, having, having Jada saying, if you are stealing, don't steal anymore, there's a thread running through this as it ties into greed, that, that insatiable desire to have more, to take from others what is not rightly ours, to, to want what they have and, and to grab after it, whatever the cost. The contrast, that if we live a new life in Christ, it's one in which we seek to be productive, to be a blessing to others, to be good to others. And I think, by the way, just as an aside, I think what we've got here in, in, verse, um, in verse 28 is one of the most sort of simple rationales in the Bible for paid employment. Why do you, why do you try and get a, a job? We should go to work to earn a living to share with those in need. And contrary to popular opinion, career planning and advancement, it is not based on wealth maximisation. In the Bible's eyes, it's about generosity maximisation. But that's an aside. Because then in verse 31, Paul wraps up with this summary that, that brings speech and our temper and a and kind of greed-driven lifestyle together. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So watch your words and control your temper. Instead of grasping for what is not yours and hating those who get in your way, live a life of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. I don't think much of that needs illustrating, does it? It kind of speaks for itself. In fact, I've been thinking it's the kind of passage that you want to print out on a piece of paper and stick on the back of the toilet door. So we're just reminded of the lives that we're called to live. If you're in Christ, expect to be different to your old self and expect that at times that will look different to your neighbours. But some of you might notice that I've skipped over this lovely little comment in verse 30 that Paul makes. Verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What a lovely little reminder that this is not at its heart actually a, talking about a list of do's and don'ts. We're talking about a life that reflects the presence of God with us. And not with us in just sort of some kind of abstract force. The Holy Spirit can be grieved because He is a person. 
He's just as intimately concerned with your heart as your loving Heavenly Father is and your self-giving Saviour, the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is grieved. When we live a life that looks exactly the same as the old self or, or our neighbours around us that don't know the Lord Jesus, He is saddened because He's come into us to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus. Sealing us for the day of redemption is how Paul described it there. The Holy Spirit's role is to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus, which is the hope that cuts right to the heart of greed. That, that longing, that grasping that says, I have to have it all now and I'll speak to you however I want and I'll stomp on you however I need to get it. Because the Holy Spirit rejoices to point us to the hope that we have in Christ. And he is grieved when we turn from that hope and we, we bury ourselves in our, in our old lives and in the way the world ticks around us. So we should expect to look different to our neighbours, different to our old selves, because we want to look more like our Father. We're finishing with this from these wonderful words at the start of chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, if, if all we do running through life is looking around us at all of the things that we shouldn't be doing, we, you know what, like what am I doing? You just end up walking in circles, right? So much as we want to look different to our old selves and, and others around us that don't know Jesus, we actually achieve that by having our compass set to true north and, and keeping a clear vision of where we're heading, keeping our eyes on God. But Goodness me, isn't this a wonderful thing to contemplate? Follow God's example. As if I could. <laughs> what an amazing thing that God, He invites me to imitate Him. I'm so prone to harsh words, impatient anger, coveting the things that others have, and yet God says, come on, Simon, follow me. Copy this. Walk in my footsteps. And then he points me to his son, who perfectly imitated his father, the Lord Jesus, who ultimately showed us the way of love that's not grasping for myself, but giving of myself. That's how we walk in the right direction, fixing our eyes on him. Now, for some of us, change feels like a terribly difficult thing to ask that I would put aside that old way of thinking or living or that I'd be able to turn aside from the constant billboards that tell me to be greedy and long for more. But change, we see here, it doesn't happen by just sheer grit and determination or beating yourself up every time you get it wrong. Ultimately, we change by looking to the love of our Father through the grace of our Saviour. As the Spirit points us to the sure and certain hope that we have in Him. And with that in mind, as I've been reflecting on this, I don't kind of just go, yeah, I really should, I really should expect to look different. I kind of think, gosh, I, I want to look different. I want to joyfully look for those opportunities to look different. Because I get to try and copy my dad. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, what an incredible privilege that we can call out to you as our Father. You open your arms in this warm embrace to kids that have just, we've hardened our hearts against you, we've, we've run the other way, we've, 
Lord, we've lived all sorts of lives. And yet you open your arms to us. You invite us to come home and then you say, yeah, come and come and copy me. Show the kind of love that I've shown you. Father, what a wonderful privilege to be called your children and then to be invited to live more like you. We can see so many practical ways that you call us to live a life that is consistent with who we are in Jesus. We have a simple prayer that you do your work in us by your spirit to make us more like your son. That our neighbours who look on might see that difference and long to know the hope that we have. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.